Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Um, my name is Jacob Lee, as Rich has already uh, mentioned. Uh, I am the RUF campus minister at the College of Charleston. Um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It's the um, college ministry of this denomination, um, and it's my joy to get to serve um, this church and this presbytery in that uh, capacity. Um, by way of getting to know you all a little bit better, um, I brought some uh, RUF College of Charleston swag. So I have some stickers, some koozies, and some cups. So if you, I have a little game we're going to play. So I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe you guys have played this game before. It's called Two Truths and a, and a Fib. We'll call it Two Truths and a Fib. So I'm going to say three things about myself two of which are true and one of which is a fib. And so if you can come up to me after the service and guess which one was the fib, uh, you can come grab a koozie or a sticker or a cup from me. So, um, all right, here, here we go. Here are the three things. Uh, and write down your answer so that you remember because I'm sure you know, you're not going to remember them as well as I will. So, okay, um, three things. Uh, two are true, one is not true. Uh, I almost delivered a baby on an elevator. That's one. I almost delivered a baby on an elevator. Uh, I once went on a silent retreat and didn't speak for two weeks. That's two. Silent retreat, didn't speak for two weeks. Um, and then the third one, I used to work in a biochemistry lab. So if you can, if you can figure out which one is, is the fib, you can come. Uh, I have got some stuff up in the corner over here. Um, come find me after the service and uh, you can have one of them. Um, so uh, this semester with RUF, we are doing a series um, on the Apostles' Creed. So um, I thought it would be fun to bring one of those talks to you all. Um, and it's uh, very apt that we got to read the creed together. So the creed is an ancient statement of faith. It's uh, the oldest statement of faith. Um, and it was often uh, recited. It was a part of a, bapt- a baptism liturgy. Um, and so uh, the idea is if, uh, if you can affirm these things, this is the very basics of what it means to be a Christian. And it's been that way for thousands of years. And so um, this morning, uh, I'm going to take a, a small portion of it, uh, kind of the section about the virgin birth. Um, and I'm going to try to explain uh, what it means, uh, what it means for uh, us as a church and how that informs our life. So... Um, we are going to start with uh, this passage from Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. You can turn there with me. I'm, I think there's Bibles in the pews. Um, Luke is in the second half of the Bible, kind of towards the end. If you can find Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll kind of be in that same, uh, in that same vicinity. So I'm going to read it for us. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me for the teaching of it? Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you uh, for this confounding mystery. Lord, that you would work in such a way as to uh, send your son to be incarnate, to take on flesh among us as a baby, um, born of a virgin. Lord, it is a mystery to us. It will remain a mystery to us in many ways, but I pray that this morning uh, you would illuminate this passage to us. Um, You would show us what you have for us. And I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about the virgin birth. Um, And no doubt many of you uh, have preconceived notions about it. Maybe you've thought about it at some length, or maybe you haven't. Um, Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I'm not sure I believe that this actually happened. I'm not sure that I believe in the virgin birth. Um, Others of you may say, this is core to who I am. Uh, This doctrine is core to my being. Um, And uh, maybe you've never even thought, hey, this is something that I should consider or should think about. Um, But I'm here to tell you this morning that uh, this doctrine, the virgin birth, is actually a central part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, And I think that's especially true as it has come under fire in the past uh, 100-ish years. Um, Some of you may be familiar with something called the Auburn Affirmation, which I'm going to nerd out about Presbyterian church history. But um, in 1924, Bible-believing Presbyterians... uh, made this statement, and the virgin birth was one of the five key issues, the key doctrines uh, that define the modern church's debate over what the Bible says. Um, There are a few folks who think differently. I'm going to kind of quote them here for you so you can get a sense of this kind of debate that's going on, or that was going on, still is going on. Um, So Harry Fosdick was an influential pastor in New York City in the early 1900s, and he said this, He said, I do not believe in the virgin birth, and I hope that none of you do. And he said that to his congregation. Um, Bishop Joseph Sprague Sprague, uh, was a bishop uh, around this same time, and he said that the virgin birth is a myth. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, maybe the most recognizable of these names, um, obviously much, much earlier than this, but he said this famous quote. He said, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin. So the day will come when the virgin birth will be classified with the fable of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Essentially, he he was saying that uh, this idea of the virgin birth uh, will one day come to be seen in the same category as Greek and Roman myths. So if we believe that what this passage is telling us is true, that Mary really was a virgin and that she gave birth to Jesus, the son of God, then I think 
it must follow that this reality actually will deeply affect who we are and how we live. And it actually begins to write us a completely different story. The key human character in this passage uh, is Mary. She is a girl of no status. She was likely about 12 to 13 years old at the time. And uh, she has been betrothed, betrothed to Joseph, but she still lives with her father at this point in the story. She didn't have royal blood or anything like that. Um, and I think uh, as we begin to see ourselves in this passage, we too can find it hard in our own lives to believe that God would want to use us in what he's doing in our world. We're all too aware of our lowly status, just like Mary. But God uses surprising means to keep his promises to his people. God uses surprising means to keep his promises to his people. Um, uh, one more uh, anecdote, uh, Larry King, which uh, probably more of you all know than my students did when I mentioned this to them. Um, Larry King uh, was asked, if you could interview anyone in the world, who would you interview? And anyone throughout history. And he said that he would want to interview Jesus. And the person that was talking to him said, uh, well, what would you want to ask him? And he said that he would want to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because he said the answer to that question would define history for me. Um, and I think that's true for us, that the answer to this question will define our very lives. So what does the virgin birth mean for me? As we ask that question, I think it's going to be helpful to focus on um, the two uh, kind of main human characters from this story. And as we do that, we begin to see what this story means for us more clearly. So we're going to have two points. Um, first, a surprising baby. And then second, a surprising mother. Surprising baby, a surprising mother. First, a surprising baby. Um, Jesus here is part of a bigger story. Um, there's one book that I'm using to prepare this series. It's really helpful. It, it um, talks through some of the kind of big questions of the creed and, and kind of brings it down to earth. It's written by Ben Myers. It's, I think it's just called the Apostles' Creed. Um, you should look it up if you're interested in this. Um, but he, uh, in this chapter on this uh, passage, um, on this section of the creed, uh, is really, really helpful. And so he uh, lays out for us kind of the history of Israel and how uh, babies, uh, pregnant women and babies, play a central role throughout all of Israel's history. Uh, so I'm going to kind of walk through that and show you how that's true. So first, um, Abraham and Sarah. Um, Abraham is the father of Israel, right? Um, he is the man who was called out of his country to, to go to the land of Canaan and to uh, become a great nation. He, he, God made promises to him um, during this time. And um, it is, uh, God promised that he would make his name great, but it was a surprise to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah, because uh, she, Sarah was thought to be barren and they were past the age of having children. So one of the key parts of the story is how is God going to work and how is God going to make Abraham's name great? And it's through a surprising pregnancy, a surprising baby, um, Isaac, that God does that. Um, you probably know the story of, of, that, of, of how that happened. So that's Isaac, uh, a surprising baby in Isaac. Um, and then the same is true uh, at the next great chapter of Israel's history, um, when, they are in, uh, when they are in Egypt, uh, in the chapter of Exodus, um, in the book of Exodus. And uh, there is another pro surprising provision through God, uh, through Moses, through that baby. 
Um, right? He, you know the story. He was in the, the basket in the, in the, in the river. Um, another surprising way that God provides for his people in uh, the baby of Moses. Uh, as the Israelite kingdom begins, um, we find yet another story of um, a surprising baby, Hannah and Samuel. Um, the first kind of main prophet of the kingdom of Israel uh, comes to fruition, comes, you know, uh, God provides him through another surprising pregnancy through Hannah. Throughout the history of Israel, God used surprising, miraculous means to accomplish his purposes. And this is a quote from this book I, I'm referencing. He says, this is how it goes in the Old Testament. At the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and, in, and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story is a story of miraculous births. Israel's story is a story of miraculous births. Um, again, one more chapter in history. Um, the prophecy of Isaiah, right? Again, one of the main prophecies that, that we know about Jesus. Uh, Isaiah prophesies that there will be a deliverer and it will be through another miraculous pregnancy. Uh, God's overarching plan, this is another quote, is to bring blessing to all the nations through the descendants of Abraham. If ever the Hebrew women ceased to bear children, the promise would have failed. The whole world would be lost. Pregnancy and childbirth are the means by which God's promise makes its way through the crooked course of history. Every newborn child is a reminder of the promise. Every male child was physically marked by circumcision, a potent reminder that their bodies were not merely their own, but had been scripted into a bigger story. When we confess that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, we see him silhouetted against the backdrop of God's promise to Abraham the exodus from Egypt, the rule of the judges, the coming of the prophets, and the promised deliverance from exile. Everything hangs on this child. The whole narrative turns on a baby. Um, and that may seem strange to you. It, you know, I would imagine that many of us in this room don't have the same uh, Jewish-Hebrew background as um, the Bible's uh, kind of chosen people. Uh, so I think if we begin to think, you know, something that happened in recent history in, in our kind of modern life, right? The Queen of England, um, she recently passed away and there was this whole kind of succession thing. And I don't know about you, but uh, when that all happened, I was like, you know, frantically searching, like, just so interested. Like, how does this succession work? Who is next in line after this person and then after that person? And um, a lot of the people that are kind of high up in the line of succession, you may know, are young children. Um, and throughout kind of history, this was often the case in uh, kind of European history, which maybe some of us are more familiar with, but everything could hang on whether or not the king or the queen had a child, right? If they had a successor or not. Um, there's lots and lots of stories about that um, where uh, the kingdom really hangs on whether or not a child is born. And I think as we begin to ponder that, we can begin to see that it really it's not actually all that surprising that uh, a whole kingdom could hang on a child. And then for us, that a, our whole reality can actually hang on a small child, uh, vulnerable though they may be. So what does this mean for us? What does this surprising baby mean for us? And I think it should lead us to what I, I'm calling uh, this morning gospel ambivalence. Um, often when you think of the word ambivalence, uh, we kind of think that it means 
Like, I'm kind of apathetic towards that. Like, I could go either way. I don't really care. That's kind of how we functionally use the word. Um, But the real meaning of the word ambivalence is to feel uh, two things, two extreme opposite emotions at the exact same time. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, It means uh, basically feeling both joy and sadness at the exact same time. Uh, It means feeling excitement and dread at the same time. And we can often feel this kind of ambivalence where we have both kind of poles in our own life um, at at one moment. And I think uh, this concept of feeling two opposite things at the same time is helpful for us. Um, Because if it's true that we really have become a part of this community that has existed since Adam and Eve, since the beginning of the world, um, I think it does two seemingly opposite things um, in, at the same time in our lives. It allows our current situations to fade in importance. Uh, we can find our own kind of significance and importance in the context of this bigger story. Um, and I think it should be immensely comforting to us to know that we are part of a bigger story, that we're not on an island by ourselves so that's one thing. It, it allows our current situations to fade in importance um, and for us to find our, our own story in the context of another story. But I think it should also be galvanizing. It should inspire us to live into this story, to make it our own and to invite others in with us. Um, and I'm kind of talking about the concept of justification and sanctification here. Um, that on the one hand, we are made right with God and we can have peace knowing that we are made right with God but also that we are called to, uh, to live out our faith, to work out our salvation, to increase our faith and to follow Jesus more and more, that we are justified and that we still are to be sanctified in the future and in our lives currently. This is the ambivalence of the gospel, uh, of being in a bigger, better story than our own, that we can be both comforted in our justification and galvanized in our sanctification at the same time. I think that's what it means uh, for us this morning. So that was a surprising baby. Uh, second, a surprising mother. Um, in kind of our Presbyterian reform circles, I think we often shy away from Mary in such a way, kind of in a reaction to um, other you know, denominations, other kind of sects of Christianity, um, in such a way that we kind of actually minimize her um, to the level that the Bible doesn't. So um, I want to kind of add a little bit of color to Mary, to who she was, um, and what that has to say to us this morning. So um, if you look in your passage um, in uh, verse 28, in the very kind of beginning of the passage, uh, the angel says that Mary is the favored one. Um, and the, the text in front of you, and if you're looking at the ESV, um, which is what I read this, this morning, says greetings, And I think that there's actually a better translation than greetings, and maybe some of your translations in front of you have that. Um, I think it should be more uh, rejoice. Um, And it, it, because I think it begins to um, show this theme of rejoicing that happens in this gospel narrative. Um, It shows us that Mary has an important and joy-giving role to play in in our story. Um, and I think that it's not a greeting that the language here is often used in the Bible. The same kind of language is often used of someone in the, who has been chosen by God for a special purpose. Um, so it's not necessarily like a greeting, like greetings. I think it's more rejoice and, and that it shows Mary that she has a special purpose to be uh, used by God. Um, this same uh, kind of verse is where 
you get Hail Mary full of grace. Maybe you've heard that prayer. Maybe you've said that prayer um, in your life. Um, that is what is being said here, uh, favored one. And I, and I like that translation better than full of grace uh, because uh, I think that it shows, our passage this morning is showing us that um, if you say favored one, then that means the grace that she has is actually given by God. It doesn't kind of emanate from her. And I think full of grace kind of begins to show us that um, it's coming from within Mary. But um, our passage shows us that it comes from God. Um, God shows an unlikely person here. Um, This is a quote from a theologian on this passage. He says, God has given his favor to one who had no claim to worthy status, raised her up from a position of lowliness, and has chosen her to have a central role in salvation history. Um, what, the implica- what would the implication of bearing this child have been for Mary? Um, and if we, again, begin to see who Mary was at this time, right? I mentioned kind of some details about her life. Uh, it would have meant ridicule for her. Um, she was 12 or 13. She was not kind of to the age where she would have uh, been married. She was betrothed to Joseph. Um, but uh, she was not, you know, she had been living with her father. And so she was not married yet. So it would have meant ridicule that this child would have been born out of wedlock. Um, those around her would have disparaged her. They would have called her names. Um, it would have been obvious to everyone that she had been unfaithful to her husband. Um, so it meant, it meant all those things for Mary's life that she would say that she was up for doing what God was calling her to. Um, why is Mary surprising to us? Why is Mary surprising? Um, so I want you to um, do something, a little exercise with me. I want you to close your eyes and uh, picture someone powerful. Picture someone powerful, someone that you think has a lot of power. Um, I wonder, you guys can open your eyes. I wonder who it was that you pictured. I'd imagine, I'm going to give some examples. Maybe some of you kind of are in the, in the same thought process as me. Maybe you pictured you know, like a wrestler, someone who's really strong and has a lot of power, physical power. Maybe you pictured a professional athlete from your favorite, you know, college or professional team. Um, maybe some of you pictured like a superhero, right? Marvel, DC, whatever. Maybe you pictured a superhero, someone who has a lot of power. Um, others of you maybe pictured like a soldier or a warrior or um, something, someone who kind of does battle. Um, maybe others of you pictured like a president, a politician, uh, maybe you pictured the queen, or, or I guess the king of England, no. Um, maybe others of you pictured like a celebrity or a quote-unquote influencer. You all know about the influencers who have all the followers and um, someone like that who has not kind of physical power, but uh, a more intangible kind of power. Um, I wonder if anyone out there pictured a 12-year-old pregnant girl. I'm going to imagine that no one did um, pick a 12-year-old pregnant girl. Uh, because of course we wouldn't, uh, and Mary, this this girl in our in our passage this morning, was on the bottom of the totem pole. She ranks low in any category. Um, she ranks low in age, in family, in heritage, even in gender. Um, at the time, it was not. It was much better for you if you were a man uh, growing up in that day than a woman. She ranked low in any category. When we picture someone who is powerful or who will do something important, we're looking for those outward signifiers, right? We're looking for the muscles, the uh, follower count maybe on Instagram, the status of someone. Um, It's, of course, surprising to us that God would seek to work through a pregnant girl. 
Um, I've known some pregnant women in my life. Maybe some of you all uh, have known. I'm imagining that probably most of you have known some pregnant women in your life. Um, and there is kind of this innate power to being pregnant in some ways, for sure. I don't want to kind of diminish that. Um, but in a, lo- in a lot of ways, being pregnant is really hard. I'm not going to say I'm speaking from a personal experience, um, but um, being pregnant is really hard. And it actually, in a lot of ways, actually drains power from, uh, from you. And again, I'm speaking you know, from my experience with my wife. We, had three, we have three lovely kids. Um, pregnant women generally move differently, right? Their, their, their body changes and they carry themselves differently. Um, they are often these kind of strange aches and pains that kind of come out of nowhere, right? That you've never experienced before, but um, just kind of spring up and you begin to feel these aches and pains. Um, and then, of course, there's literally a human being inside of a pregnant woman's body that is actually physically draining the life out of them. You know, they, they need the nutrients, they need the, the water, they need all those things. They're draining power from the mother. And of course, it's a joy to do that, but uh, that child is relying on the pregnant woman for life. Um, but Mary, this one, this 12-year-old, 12, 13-year-old um, girl who is pregnant turns out to be the favored one of God. So um, I want to look at Mary's response uh, towards the end of the passage, uh, verse 38, and see what it has to tell us about what our response might be. Um, so Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Um, another word for that could be handmaiden. Um, Basically, Mary is saying, I will be the lowest of the low. I will be a slave, a servant to God. Um, And then she says, let it be to me according to your word. Um, Essentially, what she's saying in in many ways is, um, I will take on death. Because this would have been seen, uh, her being pregnant out of wedlock would have been seen as adultery. She was not yet married, and there was a punishment uh, for that sin in that day, and it was death. Um, So there's a lot behind her statement here to say, let it be to me according to your word. Um, I also want to note that in in these kind of interactions, typically between angels and humans, um, it's not normal for the human to have the last word. Usually it's God or the angel that has the last word. Um, But I think it's amazing that her response is what's left for us. It's left out there for us. And I think the reason it's, it's done that way is it's meant to be exemplary for us. It's meant to demonstrate how Israel and how concurrently us should respond to God's favor. And I want to ask, can we say, let it be to me according to your word? Often when we decide to follow Jesus, we think that it means that we're going to have it good that we're gonna, it's going to lead us to health and prosperity. But in reality, when we, when we say that we want to follow Jesus, uh, we're signing up to enter into death in many ways. This is what Mary signed up for, um, for the danger of being killed for a crime she didn't commit. She raised Jesus, she, carried, she cared for him, and then she sent him to the cross, um, sent him to a place where he would be killed for a crime that he didn't commit. And when we sign up to follow Jesus, we are signing up for the same thing. Life with him often looks like death. It looks like dying to your earthly desires and learning and taking on new ones. Beloved, the good news this morning is that this isn't the end of the story. We may be signing up for death, but we are also signing up for life. We've talked a lot conceptually about this passage and about Mary 
Um, but the whole Bible is about God and what he is doing. And that's true of our passage as well. God is the one who will ensure these things to come to pass. Um, in, in the beginning of uh, our passage, um, kind of in the middle of the passage, uh, beginning in verse uh, 31, um, there's all these future verbs. Maybe you noticed it. Um, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called. The Lord will give. Um, He will reign. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Um, And I think that those future verbs are put there to show us the certainty of the thing that, that the angel is promising. It will come to pass. God is the one who is doing these things. Um. Of course, all these names that we get um, about uh, these titles for Jesus that we find, the Son of the Most High, Jesus, which means uh, one who will save. Um, He's going to be great. He's going to be the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Uh, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, right? He is in the line of the Israelite kings. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Um, these titles that we see, these kind of things that will be true of Jesus, show us this kind of Old Testament fulfillment, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies from the Old Testament. In Jesus, we find not only a model death for us, but a model life as well. We find resurrection, new everlasting life. It's at the lowest point imaginable that God carries out his promises, Perhaps for you uh, this morning, you also are at a low point in your life. Maybe you're haunted by a sin that you can't seem to get rid of. Maybe you're in a low place in your life, in your career, in your trajectory, and you just don't know how much longer you can do it, how, longer, how much longer you can bear the burden. Um, maybe you're just overwhelmed by all the responsibilities that are laid on you um, in this season of your life. Friends, today there is good news. Christ meets you in those low places. He knows them all too well. He meets you in those low places and he gives you new life. And this morning, this is for us an invitation to life and to life abundant. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you um, for the truth of the gospel that you meet us in those low places. You know them better than we can know them ourselves. Lord, that you went to the cross and you um, died a death for a crime that you didn't commit. Um, Lord, bearing the burden of the crimes that we did commit and giving to us your new name, Lord, that we can be called holy. We can be called righteous and faithful because of your holiness, your righteousness, and your faithfulness. Give us this life. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.